winter is coming. You're listening to the Watchers of Westeros. I am the king! A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. But also heard the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debt. For the night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of The Watchers of Westeros. You are in the right place if you are looking for talk about the HBO series Game of Thrones. Uh, We're so excited that you've joined us for this episode. We're going to be talking about the second half of season one. Some huge events happening. Of course, the big twist in episode nine. We will be focusing in on that, of course. Uh, But but introductions are in order. My name is Dominic, and joining me as he does each and every week is my good friend and co-host, Kieran. Good evening, Dominic. I am absolutely buzzing to be talking about Game of Thrones again. We're talking about this off-air, and I was just articulating at how glad I am to be getting back into the series, and certainly with it building up to the premiere of season five in april it just feels so right to get back into the episodes get back into the world of game of thrones and westeros which it's just been it's already it's been a good ride a great ride so far and we're only in season one and i think that's tantamount really to how good this show really is that sometimes people can look at season one and think well you know it started off on a on a decent foot it was an okay mediocre but it really excelled in later seasons yeah. but it starts off with a bang and i'm buzzing to be talking about the five episodes episode six till ten from season one but dominic how are you doing today i i'm doing great I, i'm excited as well to, to get into these episodes because really this these are the episodes where we really get into sort of yeah, everything was built up in those first five episodes, and we kind of get the ramifications from those. And we also get the revelation that this series is not like other series. You know, we, you know, in the other, in the first five episodes, yeah, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of, you know, there's some action and some, some gory moments. But this is where you really see how different this show is because, of course, well, we can just say it. You know, Ned gets his head chopped off, and, and you know, nobody was expecting that. I mean, unless you read the books. But it it's one of those things that... It, it builds up to that moment so well and they built and Sean Bean played that character so well and they built up to that moment and it came off perfectly. I think they just did a great job and we're going to get into that uh, tonight on this episode. So uh, before we jump into things, Kieran, do you have episode descriptions for us for episodes four through six? I do indeed, Dominic, and we'll kick off with episode six titled A Golden Crown. While practice riding a horse with a specially designed saddle, Bran is captured by a group of wildlings, soon rescued by Rob and Theon. Ned is left in guard of the Iron Throne while the king goes to hunt, and Ned learns the secret left by Jon Arryn. Angered by Drogo's disrespect and his failure to uphold his end of their bargain, Viserys threatens Daenerys. This has taken place across the Narrow Sea. Episode 7 is titled, You Win or You Die. Ned confronts Queen Cersei over the truth of Jon Arryn's death. 
Robert mortally wounded by a wild pig during his hunting, says Ned will rule as regent of the Iron Throne until his eldest son, Joffrey, comes of age. Jon Snow takes the vows of the Night's Watch, and across the narrow sea, Khal Drogo summons his army to invade Westeros after an assassin tries to poison Daenerys. Episode 8 in uh, Season 1 is titled Pointy End. As the Lannisters press their advantage over the Starks, Ned's eldest son Rob rallies his family's allies to war. Sansa pleads with Joffrey to spare her father's life, while Ned, still captive in the dungeons, finds an unexpected ally and counsellor Lord Barris. John and the Night's Watch confront an ancient evil from beyond the wall, while across the narrow sea, Drogo's army marches west towards the Seven Kingdoms. Episode 9, Baylor. You can tell there's a lot going on here, by the way, folks. Um, episode 9, Baylor. <laughs> As the Stark and Lannister armies prepare for their first battle against one another, Tyrion leads his barbarian allies into battle, while Rob and Catelyn bargain for a renegade lord's help. With Drogo dying from an infected wound, Daenerys goes to desperate measures to save her husband's life by using blood magic, much to the horror of the Dothraki, and at the wall, Master Aemon reveals himself to be a Targaryen and the price of loyalty to Jon. And the final episode of season one, titled Fire and Blood. The news of Ned's demise quickly spreads to all corners of the Seven Kingdoms, triggering seismic events for each member of the Stark family. The North secedes from the Seven Kingdoms and proclaims Rob as their king. Lord Tywin Lannister appoints his son Tyrion as the king's hand to keep Joffrey and Cersei in check. Jon plans to desert his post at the Wall, and Daenerys learns to her sorrow that her unborn son is dead and her Drogo has been left in a vegetative state due to the witch's treacherous magic. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. We should just mention very quickly our uh, spoiler policy. Basically, uh, we are not book readers, sadly. Uh, We haven't read the books, uh, so we don't know what's going to happen uh, beyond what we've seen in the show. And and so, you know, if you you read the books, you can, of course, we we want you to listen. You can hear our, our analysis of what has happened and snicker at how wrong our our predictions for what may happen is and if if you are getting caught up on the show um we are going to be discussing these episodes specifically but if they relate to something that happens later on in the show we're not going to uh well we are going to talk about it we're not going to shy away from it so uh spoilers if you have not seen all the way through to the end of season four um but if you haven't read the books then you're safe all right let's let's get into this right away i mean let's just start off by talking about episode nine. I mean, because that is the, that is the big one. I, I really think that that one was huge. And I just want to get your, your take here. And I mean, how did, how did you feel when you first saw that episode? What was your reaction to seeing Ned get his head chopped off like that at the end? Oh, I was, I was in disbelief. I thought it was incredulous. As I, as I stated in the previous episode, I had always assumed that Ned Stark was going to be the protagonist in this show. Yeah. He would be the main character that the audience would follow throughout this entire series. And yet, by episode nine, he he was gone. He, he, his head had been chopped off. I, I, was, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. And it, it took me... It, it's one of those things that in your mind you try and tell yourself, well, we didn't, we didn't see his head get chopped <laughs> off necessarily in that episode. Maybe, maybe he missed. Maybe he missed. <laughs> maybe he missed. But of course, it wasn't. It wasn't to be. It was. Yeah. You say. You. No, those are like the the first moments, the initial moments, like uh, the first couple of minutes after. You're like, nah, no, nah, I didn't just see that. 
and then when you finally take it in it's it's incredible and you can you can gauge the fan reaction by the multiple reaction videos yeah. that <laughs> are on youtube when you see people watching this um, I mean, when we get to the big one in season three, we could talk more about that, and we should probably get some clips actually to listen to. But for Ned Stark, um, you know, you, you, people just sitting there who haven't read the books and are thinking, "Wait, wait a minute, what's happened here?" Ned Stark, he's pledged his loyalty, he's pledged yeah. fealty to King Joffrey, and then this monstrous figurehead has decided to cut his head off. You couldn't believe it, and and to be honest, it came at a time when it seemed. The Starks were doing reasonably well on the battlefield. Yeah. Robert just apprehended Jamie Lannister. Tywin's forces were well, they, they realized that they they had been caught up in this in this facade, really, believing mm-hmm. that there would be eighteen twenty thousand men. There were only two thousand men. Um, and it was only a diversion. And as a result, they managed to acquire Jamie Lannister. And you're thinking to yourself, yes, Starks, come <laughs> you go to King's Standard. You've got some you've got a hostage now. You can negotiate. And then what happens? Ned's head gets chopped off. And it's just horrible. And really it's exemplified through the reactions, not just of the audience, but the the actors and the characters themselves. When you see Arya's just Mm -hmm. in disbelief, she she runs, she's running towards towards the the, the stage, the scepter. She's on the scepter of Balon. She's running towards her father and only gets stopped by Yorin, the, the the knight of the Black's. Sorry, uh, <laughs> member of the Night's Watch yeah. is what I meant to say. Yeah. And, and in Sansa faints, and it's just, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And I, you can only feel sympathy towards those characters. But in terms of the impact for this show, as you said at the beginning, it really set this show apart from all of the other television series that I've seen. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I admit, I haven't seen Breaking Bad, and I know people say, well, that, that's got some big shocks. Walking Dead equally has some big ones, but at so at such an early point, I yeah. mean, this is a big risk. I mean, of course, this is based on the books, but nevertheless, you've got a, a, a well-renowned actor, a, a class masterful actor in Sean Bean, and you get rid of him in episode nine, <laughs> and that leaves it up to the other actors yeah. to put their A game into the show. And I think they've done it. Mm-hmm. And really, you, you can even go back to season one and think, well, I'm still shocked that Ned's died, but. It leads to the development and a change in trajectory for so many characters that is so important for for their own development, and I think that it works so well. Oh, yeah. um, Dominic, what were your what were your initial what was your initial reaction yeah. when you saw the execution of Ned Stark? Shock, really. I, I mean, you know, by the time I, I started watching it, I, I knew that Game of Thrones had this reputation for killing off all of your favorite characters as, as well as the fact that I kind of noticed that this guy, Ned, that Sean Bean was, was absent from a lot of the, the, you know, promotion that you see just from, you know, being on social media and, and whatnot. So I, I was kind of wondering if this was going to happen, but it didn't, but that didn't lessen the emotional impact. It wasn't, maybe wasn't as shocking for me as it was for you, but it, it was still a, a absolutely emotional scene. It was pulled off so well. I mean, you look at episode nine, if, like you said, it feels like things are going right. I mean, they've captured Jamie Lannister. Things are, are looking good. And, and you've even kind of had what would work in most episodes as a pretty good climax with the whole – with all the stuff that's going on with Drogo and, and, and Danny and, and, and that witch lady. And, and all of this stuff is going on. And then this happens at the end and it, it's just brutal. And the way that scene is shot and the way it's built up, uh, John Favreau, who, who's the director of, of the first two Iron Man and 
Iron Man movies, and, and he also uh, directed Elf and Chef, and he, you know he's a well well known director in his own right. I remember hearing him talk about that scene, and just how well it was built up because, you know, in a regular movie, you expect something different to happen. You expect somebody to swoosh in and save the day, and they're kind of building up Arya like she's going to do that. You know, she's she's getting ready to draw a needle. She's wait, making her way towards the front, and of course. It's not like she's going to be able to stop anything from happening. So it is a good thing that, that she was stopped from getting up there. But, you know, you're thinking, oh, no, she's she hasn't done enough. Uh, she hasn't, hasn't done enough sword fighting practice. She's not good enough yet to stop um, Ilan Payne from, from chopping off Ned's head. And and it was just so brilliantly done and, and well done. And, and the twist in it really cements just how evil Joffrey is, because even in some of these episodes, you know, you'd started to see, you know, maybe Joffrey was was going to change a little bit. He was nice to Sansa in one scene, and you know, maybe that was sort of a sign that things would would start to look up for them. But really, it, it just it, it it just you know it devastates you emotionally, and it was just so brilliantly done. It pulled the carpet from under your feet, really. Oh didn't yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. It it really does. And so I I want to focus in on, on Ned first because really he's. This is this, these episodes are really about him, and and we're going to talk about Ned and, and really how a lot of these characters and and how they relate to what happened there and and how it affects them, and then of course we we also really want to get into the the small council, and I think this is a perfect time to do so because we we did kind of skip over them last week, and and they uh they they play a, a huge part in in what goes on in, in these episodes. So we kind of pick up right from where we left off last week after the fight between Jamie and Ned. And there's this very interesting interaction between Ned, Robert, and Cersei. And it, it, it was a, it's a strange scene because you see Ned taking, taking a responsibility for Tyrion's capture, which is odd. But I guess that's sort of the noble, nobleman Ned Stark. He doesn't want to, uh, doesn't want to throw his, his wife under the bus. And then we see, um, Cersei basically, get away with or well she gets away with letting jamie off the hook basically because robert is so in debt to his to their father and I, i'm curious for, for what your take on that scene was because it was it was it was very strange to see because you know that robert really sides with ned and yet he's forced to uh to, to side with the lannisters and you see that you kind of see the ramifications of his lifestyle there and it, and it shows why he may not necessarily be the best king. He seems to be the bastion, really, the, the figurehead that is, 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 is desperate to keep the peace. And, yeah. And he says as much, doesn't he? He says, I can't keep the peace if the Lannisters and the Starks are at each other's throats. And so he's just trying to pacify the situation, as it were, and he feels the best way to do that is really to do nothing, apart yeah. from implore Ned to release Tyrion. He yeah. says, you know, end the little game, just give him up. And, you know, in a way, you can understand from his perspective, he wants to enact this form of diplomacy because he's right. And to be honest, he would be wised up to most people, uh, more than most people about this, because he was part of a rebellion. Yeah. You know? he was, that, that was one of the reasons that he was able to come to the throne. People said that he was a usurper because mm-hmm. he had insurrected against the mad king and so he would understand that if there's friction between the houses it may well result in war and sure sure enough it does after his death and he's not wrong about that 
but from that perspective, I I can I can empathise with his situation. I can understand why he doesn't actually act mm-hmm. act against Jamie Lannister because he realises that ultimately, if he does, then it's going to mean trouble for him because his because his father, Jamie's father, Tywin Lannister, is the one that really sponsors a lot of the of the income that comes into that comes to the crown and that is for Robert and he will lose that and if he loses if he loses the income if he loses the money Peter Baelish will later says it enough he says if the if the hand and the queen both choose different candidates for the for the throne who who who, who do the gold cloaks decide to side with the one who pays them the one who pays them and he realizes that as much. If he loses that income, then he may well lose his kingdom. So it's it's from that perspective that you surely could you can understand his perspective. Really, you can understand why he, even though he does side with it, he doesn't act against Lan- Jamie Lannister. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on on that particular scene because I agree it was a very very good scene, very good, uh, well acted yeah. scene. I, I think that scene really shows the the differences between Ned and Robert because you see that you know we we sometimes suggest that Robert may not be, be- best suited for for the crown, but at the same time you really have to to wonder if Ned is as as well. I mean, we, we all like to think that he is the the perfect choice. Um, but you almost wonder if Ned has too much honor to be the to be the king. You know, he he's he's more interested in seeking out justice than keeping the peace, and that's a really horrible thing to to say. But it almost you almost wonder if if what Westeros need, needed was someone like Robert to keep that peace because everything does go to war. I mean, it's the War of Five Kings, and you know, as soon as Ned gets gets the power of when Robert gives him power where he, well, he goes hunting. I mean, Ned starts trying to arrest Tywin Lannister. And we know that the crown is hugely in debt to Tywin Lannister. And it, and it just, uh, it makes you wonder about, about Ned, this character that we, we know is the ultimate good guy. Well, maybe he isn't meant to be King. Maybe that was, maybe he made the right choice to not take the throne, you know, to, to let Robert have it. It, it, it's interesting to think about it that way, I, I think, because, you know, it, you really want to believe that Ned is the is is the is the right choice. But is he, though? I mean, clearly Joffrey isn't. Joffrey isn't. Um, don't know if Stannis really is. Maybe maybe Renly was right. Maybe he was the right choice. Um, but I don't know. We'll, we'll you know, we'll see who ultimately wins. Maybe maybe it's Daenerys. I think it's, it's probably her. Um, but but it also we also see Ned sort of go on this mystery, mystery adventure where he, he finally uncovers the truth. He uncovers what John Aaron died for. He uncovers who Joffrey's true parents are. And he confronts Cersei about it. And you really see that, that Ned believes in Robert, that Robert will be, you know, angry. And he, he seems to know his friend, but really Ned is almost the, almost the recipient of some bad luck in this situation because he, if if he was able to present this to Robert, you can sure as hell bet Robert would have gone after Cersei. You know, he wouldn't have let things happen. But Robert gets killed by the boar, and you know, people say that that Cersei is responsible for that death because she she gave him the wine, which is true to a, a certain extent. But it's is also an element of luck 
that it just so happened that Robert was was killed in that that hunting expedition. So I, I'm curious what, on your take on on that scene where they uh, where they where Ned confronts Cersei about what goes on. Yes, it's definitely a key scene in this, really, mm-hmm. and it's, it's where that line comes from. That, that infamous line in the Game of Thrones: "You win or you die," and it's something that we you, you quite fittingly mentioned in the previous discussion, where Ned may well be too honourable for this job, um, and of course, we talk about family as the overriding theme. He really does care for his family. That's mm-hmm. what really drives him. Um, as he said, he's a soldier. He'd be prepared to die. Yeah, he's, he, he could have died a long time ago. He's been in countless wars. But what keeps him alive is the love he has for his family. And so when he does go and say things to Tywin Lannister about Tywin Lannister, will you have to be a- apprehended? And, and he's doing his best to to really enact justice upon upon Westeros and and against those so called tyrants, those who have exercised power malfiescently or malevolently and so you, you can understand that from from his perspective but confronting Cersei about the incestuous relation, relationship with Jaime was 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 the nail in his coffin unfortunately yeah. and yeah he, he wouldn't know I mean I, I say nail in the coffin in the sense that based on his persona and character he would never change Yeah, but if he had confronted Robert instead of Cersei because obviously that's his, that, you know, he is this honourable man and and, and and principled in that respect. It would have been a different situation. But after that, I know people like Peter Baelish and Renly came forward and said, align with me and I'll help you take power and, and, and accede to the throne and, and we'll secure your position. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would never do that because, as I said, he, he is... As a soldier, he really does follow the law and the code to its end. When he said, Renly, you can't be king because Stannis is the rightful heir. You're only his younger brother. Yeah. And then to Peter Baelish, he says something akin to what you're suggesting there is treason. That If we take this power and then just seat Renly or uh, leave Joffrey, the illegitimate heir on the throne, it's not right. Yeah. And I think that's in that conversation with Cersei, it becomes obvious that he would never, ever... Change, he he would never buy into any of that. He would never buy into the idea of actually taking the throne for himself. But Cersei is trying to say to him, "Well, one, you know, Lee, you should be going home." She says that as much as like you 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 don't you don't seem to be suited to the South. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much saying this is the time now. Leave, and in a way, it's partly because she's saying, "If you leave, keep that secret with you. We, we'll say no more." Um, but. She, and, and she knows as much that he won't take the crown because she said, well, when you were a rebellion, you, you had that chance to stand and, and take that seat, and yet you didn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't take the Iron Throne. Um, and that is, that is generally the key, the pivotal moment that seals Ned's fate, at least for being apprehended. But as we know with Joffrey, we can pretty much say that sealed his fate <laughs> of being executed. Well, yeah, you, um, met, you mentioned something very interesting there that Ned is sort of – he has his loyalty to his family and his loyalty to to the realm or to, to the betterment of the realm. And he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in that because he – this decision to go after Tywin Lannister is ultimately I think what, what sort of drives the, the, the Stark and, and, uh, 
and Lannister houses to war, really. As, as much as it may have been about Tyrion, I think that decision from Ned is is really the the final the final the, the straw that broke, breaks the camel's back of tension between those two houses, and so that's a bad decision. But at the same time, he is so focused on on wanting to have the rightful king be king, and so he he wants to you know get rid of Joffrey one because I think he realizes what a monster Joffrey is based on on the whole ordeal with uh, with Sansa's direwolf and and that and the river fight in the in previous episodes. And and so it, it's interesting to see him caught between these two places, and you know he obviously is is trying to do what's best both for his family and for the realm, and yet those two two things don't necessarily line up right. You know it, it doesn't seem because you know arresting Tywin Lannister is is not good for the realm. Clearly, I mean he he you know, what was it three million in debt to Tywin Lannister? That's and then to arrest that guy that's not a that's not a good good idea. But it's good for for Ned's family, and so he kind of comes up with that excuse that that Littlefinger puts in his mind about the about the fish and 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 the mountain and and, and all that stuff. So it it it's unfortunate for Ned, but because he's he's so honorable, and yet he's trying to be honor he's trying to honor two commitments, and ultimately those two commitments don't necessarily line up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just a shame, really, that those two commitments can't align because, as we said, from the perspective of the audience, he is the epitome of this chivalric soldier. Yeah. Someone who really upholds honor and he is, he is uh, absolutely, he is this principled soldier who really, as you said, he wants to abolish corruption. He wants. He wants to improve the livelihood of all people in Westeros, and and he has such care, close connection to, towards his family, and yet he's caught in between two lines there. How is he going to uphold both of them? And in the end, he made, unfortunately, regardless of the nobility of his decision, he made the wrong decision in this context because King's Landing is hardly the most noble place. I think that's putting it mildly yeah, <laughs> in yeah, Westeros. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, we you know, we mentioned him going after Tywin Lannister sort of shows his his uh his commitment to the to his family. But then his his commitment to the realm is kind of seen in that edit that he makes in Robert's final command. You know, Robert says, Till my son Joffrey and Ned changes it to, to until my rightful heir, I think, uh comes of yeah. age. And and that that right there, that was a very interesting moment because that could be taken as as not very honorable, not following his his friends, his dying friends' final command to the letter. But at the same time, he is also trying to do what is best for the realm. And and in this moment, you almost get the sense that this is Ned beginning to learn how to play the game. And that's what's so brilliant about the show is all of a sudden you seem to see that Ned may be about to learn how to play the game and that he's going to get involved in a in a much bigger way. Um, than than he was before, and in that ed- so he makes that edit thinking that this is going to be his way to to get somebody else to I guess to get Stannis onto the throne instead of Joffrey, and ultimately ultimately it fails, and it's kind of sad that it is in that sort of moment of weakness for Ned. I don't know if it's necessarily a moment of weakness, but in that one moment where he sacrifices his honor, that is what ultimately causes him to die, because that when he when he marches into the throne room and he tries to present that to, to that, that letter to Cersei and to Joffrey, all of a sudden everybody realizes, 
or all of a sudden it, it looks to everybody like he is like he's trying to take the throne for himself like he is trying to overthrow the king and that is why people are willing to believe and that that's what people believe and that's why people accept him being beheaded at the end of the episode at least those are the, the people in the in the story us as viewers you know we have that that outsider perspective and we know everything that's going on and we know that Ned was right and this was a wrongful death. But I thought that was interesting that he has that, that is that one moment where he isn't the, the ultra honorable Ned Stark that ultimately I think really seals his fate as much as that, that conversation with Cersei, it's that and this, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. I, and as, as I stated before, definitely that scene with Cersei was, was just so pivotal and crucial to sealing Ned's fate and ultimate demise, which again, for the for the for the audience is just is just so distraught. It's just a distraughting and disturbing image, really, having mm-hmm. to see Ned get. I, I was trying to think of a rhyme there about Ned and head, but it didn't work. <laughs> but anyway, um, Ned lost his head. To see, to, yeah, to see Ned lose his head. There we go. That'll do. <laughs> and yeah, I. I agree with you that, that those were the two crucial factors. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's uh, let's. Well, one more thing. One more thing uh, about Ned. I think in the end, we we do ultimately see that Ned's true true honor and true commitment lay, lies with his family. And in that moment where he he's convinced by by Varys, I, I guess that you know to to ultimately accept the the plea to you know to know that he's going to be sent to the wall, but he'll at least be alive and. You know, his children won't have to see him die. And we see in that moment that he makes that commitment. And really, as much as, you know, much as that is true, he doesn't, as much as he makes the right decision, it ultimately means he doesn't get to die with his, you know, his his soldier's honor, believing and, you know, taking to the grave that, you know, the fact that he spoke the truth the whole time, spoke the whole truth, nothing but the truth, you know, at all times. And I think that's sort of one of the the ultimate tragedies of of Ned Stark is that you know he 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 was right he was he was the guy who who figured it all out. And what's really interesting, I think, is that you know this whole plot about you know Joffrey being being a bastard and not being the rightful heir. In some ways, you know, I mean, it's continued on in season two with with Stannis taking over for uh, for or with Stannis trying to invade King's Landing. But, you know, the whole mystery of somebody trying to expose Joffrey as not being legitimate is kind of dropped. And after watching that first season, you would think that would be a huge, huge deal for the rest of the series. But that secret, you know, Ned doesn't tell anybody. That secret dies with him. You know, the only people that know are, are Littlefinger and Varys, and they're not really going to, to, to tell anybody. They, they, they've got too much on the line to lose. They don't have the honor that Ned Stark has. And, and it, it represents... You know, Ned losing his head, I'm doing it again, um, represents really a shift in the show as well, away from this this mystery about Joffrey and into this ultimate war uh, that happens over the next two seasons, really. Yeah, I mean, it justifies a lot of people's reasons for going to war, at least. Yeah. And it's definitely the spark, I would say, for Stannis going to war. Because, and Renly, yeah, and, and Renly as well. Although, although Renly, to an extent, because yeah, well, with Renly, technically, I'm... technically, Stannis is the right for there. If we're going to go down the mm-hmm. line of succession, but Renly just wants to be king because he thinks he'd be a better one. Yeah, um, he would be a better candidate. 
Yeah. Um, and Rob obviously goes. It was already gone to war before this. Yeah. And uh, and Daenerys, you know, it's all it's all for Rob. It's not necessarily based on the idea of being a rightful heir. That's but true. But by it's... the end, by the end, people proclaim him as being <laughs> the warden, king of the north, king of the north. That's yeah. it. And I think I think it's just interesting how it all, as you said, it sort of just it, it just mellows down quite a bit. And it's only really in that first episode where of season two where it explodes when. Because if you remember, in, in one of these episodes, Ned does send a raven to Stannis. Yep. Uh, he, he gives it to one of his, one of his uh, members of the entourage, and then Stannis sends it to everybody else, yep. or at least to uh, most of the people within the Seven Kingdoms. And you know, even Joffrey hears of it. Yeah. But again, it's kept quiet because if you start saying it's real, then you're well clearly for Joffrey's own uh, right, as it were, his prerogative to actually sustain his position on the throne becomes completely undermined. And there's no reason, that's the principal reason he's not going to talk about it. Um, but as I said, for everyone then, else, it's yeah. the vindication to go to war. And, and yeah, I mentioned that it had kind of been dropped. And you're right, it is sort of the reason that everybody goes to war. And it's more, and but nobody really talks about it in King's Landing because I think they all realize that Joffrey will kill them or, or do something horrific to them if, if they even mention it, because I mean, we see in, in episode 10 here, just Joffrey listening to the song about the, 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 that the guy sang about Robert, who he clearly, I don't think Joffrey cared about Robert in the slightest. Um, he has that guy's tongue ripped out and in a very, in very brutal fashion. So yeah, nobody's going to, nobody's going to speak out about, out against Joffrey, uh, other than Ned. And well, we saw what happened to him. Uh, well, let, let's get into the small council now because uh, I think these guys are, are, are really interesting and, and we didn't have time to talk about them last week. So I, I really want to get into them now, starting with Littlefinger because he he is the one, you know, he's he's the one that's very hard to pin down more so than even even the other even even Varys. I mean, Varys is, is tough to pin down as well. And we'll get into him in a second. But Littlefinger especially and especially in these these early episodes, because we see, um, you know, when when Ned arrives at King's Landing and then when, when Catelyn arrives at King's Landing, he's the one who's helping them. He's the one who seems like he's going to be the good guy. And then we get the reveal in in the last in the, or not the last episode, in I guess this would be episode six or seven, that he was not that you know, he was working against Ned the whole time. He was working for the the Queen, I guess we should say. Um and then you look back on his actions, I mean he clearly suggests to Ned that that Tywin Lannister is behind behind the attacking the villages, which gives Ned the reason to go after and arrest him. Um, he he gives gives the information that Tyrion had his dagger after uh, he gives that information to to Ned and Cat, and that dagger was then used to attempt to kill Bran, and so. All of a sudden, you sort of looking back on it, there's all these hints. And it's it's really what's great about the show is the way it's built up like this, that there are all these hints that this guy is is actually, you know, you shouldn't trust him. Like he says, I told you, you shouldn't trust me. Um, and, and so I'm curious on, on your take on, on Littlefinger. What would you think of him? Yeah, I thought he was a very, very interesting character. He's a very complex character, really, isn't it? And I always am more intrigued about the Royal Council as to how they were a actually able to attain their positions, because <laughs> none of them are from noble birth. And, I mean, as you said earlier, the reason why they don't back Ned is 
principally because they're not of noble birth. They have so much more to lose yeah. if they were to align themselves with a traitor and they know that they have to play the game they have to play the game carefully, attentively and diligently. And they can't afford to make silly errors and mistakes. They know how to play the game. Ned mm-hmm. doesn't. Yeah. Um, but with regards to Lord Baelish, talking about what his overriding objective is, and I think it's really revealed more so in episode, more than any other episode in season one, uh, in, in episode seven, you win or you die. Right. When he, he talks with Roz and, and the other prostitute in, in the pleasure house, and he, he talks about the story of how he first met Cat. They were youngsters. They grew up together. He adored her. And then she decided to wed a northerner, which he then decided to, to duel and ultimately lost. And it was at that point that he realized that his strengths would really lie in the political intrigue, the, the manipulation of other people intellectually and psychologically rather than physically. He couldn't physically harm them. And, um, you know, it's quite a crude term, but he says that instead of wanting to fight them, he wants to fuck them. Mm-hmm. And that's really his his ambition yeah. throughout this, that he wants he wants everything. He wants everything, but it's the love as well he has. He does, he, he has that one person he desires, and that's Catelyn Stark. Later will be Sansa Stark, but there's just something about <laughs> those two in particular yeah. that he has a fascination from, an infatuated obsession towards, you could argue. Which which um, makes his betrayal of Ned all the more shocking because you know that he is obsessed with Catelyn and, and you, I mean really if he thought that getting rid of Ned in such a dramatic fashion would help him win Cat then clearly he was clearly he was on some kind of drugs. What actually is his motivation with Ned because yeah. he is the one who Littlefinger is the one who implores Ned to align with Littlefinger and seize the power of the throne for for themselves. Yeah. Now, you could take that in two ways. You could think, well, he clearly wants the power and senses his opportunity with Ned because he's this noble, honourable guy. Or you could look at it from this perspective that if he really does adore Catelyn Stark, he wants to remove Ned and get him out. Well, if he can get into this power circle between him and, and Littlefinger, then eventually it will lead to his betrayal. Yeah. But I, you, you do wonder a Littlefinger. He's so manipulative, so cautious and... and, and and, and wised up really to to the world that uh, and intuitive, you you, ju- you just wonder what exactly is he looking to achieve and how? Because we we have to remember it's Littlefinger ultimately that's really kicked off the Game of Thrones if you if you want to say that um, the fact that it was him who told and and, and really impelled Lady Arryn of the House of um, House of Arryn, Lysa Arryn mm-hmm. to poison the hand of the king and then later she was the one that sent the letter to the Starks about the Lannisters conspiracy which then really um, it, it really it really instituted the the friction between uh, or really it really commenced the friction between the Lannisters and the Starks and then it would just snowballed really throughout this season yeah but I'm interested to hear what your take is on Littlefinger Dominic yeah, it's, it's- like you said, he's a very interesting character because there are sort of those two – kind of like Ned, there are those two competing motivations. He wants power and he wants Cat. And so I think he, ultimately it's his drive for power that is really taking control. And like you said, like you said, he says that line, you know, he can't fight them. He'll have to fuck them. And so there he is. He, he, he's not fighting these people. 
he's creating these situations where people are going to fight each other. And ultimately, he winds up with a hell of a lot of power out of this. There's a great video online that goes over how Littlefinger has manipulated this game in order to gain incredible amounts of land. And it, it, it's really fascinating. I highly recommend everybody seek it out. Just I think if you just if you just search for for little finger theories, and you should be able to find that on uh, on on YouTube. It, it's really interesting. And so he's he's got. This... I, thought, I thought you were going to say look at the little finger trailer for twenty fourteen. Yeah. Well, there's there's that too. I, I I highly recommend that as well. That's hilarious. Um, but you you do see this sort of he's built up this power and this control of land. And so that he is now in a position where people are envious of him, much in the way he was envious of Ned's brother, who whom he challenged to a duel and lost. And so now it's it's almost like, yes, he he loved Cat, and yes, he would love to be with her, but she's almost secondary to him now, as as much as he now wants people to look up to him and and be envious of him, and so he can look down on other people just with this, these insane amounts of power. And uh, really, that's what I think is driving him is is power, not love. All right, and that let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about about Varys because I think Varys is equally equally intriguing. He's the spider. Uh, I want to go back to a previous episode from from episodes one to five where Arya overhears this conversation that Var- Varys is having with with Magister Illyrio. Yeah, Illyrio, who uh, who we know was was holding uh, Danny and Viserys for a while, and clearly, you see in that scene, it, it becomes quite clear that that Varys is helping, is trying to help Danny get back on the throne. I think he realizes, and we see in the season five trailer um, that he's that that is his goal is is to get get a Targaryen or at least get get this specific Targaryen back onto the Iron Throne. And and yet, he is willing to help Robert kill Danny. He's willing to let you know. Maybe he maybe he maybe he had enough faith that that Jorah wouldn't let it happen. But he's willing to to let to let Danny die, so that the the Targaryens won't return. And yet, it's his goal that the Targaryens return. So I I wanted to know what what you think. What is his ultimate goal? He is a compelling one because, similar to Littlefinger, his ambitions are clouded and, and, and it, to the audience at least, it's very ambiguous. But the line he says to Ned when Ned's in that cell mm-hmm. is that he wants to serve the realm. But what does that actually mean? What does that entail? That's a question that's never really been answered, I don't think. Yeah. But what we can, what we can base upon, particularly the clips in the trailer of season five and privy to what we've seen already in season one and uh, with his talk with Master Illyrio is that it seems to be supporting the Targaryen dynasty. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not as profound as he's necessarily either working for them or maybe maybe he's waiting for the right opportunity. And you could be right. Maybe he thinks there's a lot... He has faith with, with Jorah, but I don't know, really, if I would necessarily agree with that because Jorah's been the one who's feeding yeah, the spider this information. Exactly. And so, if you're going to put that on faith, then surely you, you would you wouldn't you wouldn't send them, or you would make sure that Jorah didn't find out somehow. Um, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. It's it's really really difficult to decipher. Uh, but you can also argue, to be fair, 
to Varys that maybe he didn't see Daenerys as the true heir at the time and placed mm. placed it on Viserys, who was still alive at this point. And so thinking, well, she dies, okay, but it doesn't actually change anything. Viserys is still alive, and maybe yeah. he's the one well, that can ascend the mantle. It, I mean, those are speculations and yeah. theories that I'm putting out there, but it's still quite abstract, and it's not actually substantiated substantiated throughout the series i would say maybe we'll get clarification in season five it looks like we will but as you said it's what is his overriding ambition what is his objective to serve the realm what does that even mean yeah that he like i said he's one of the most fascinating characters and i I think you know you mentioned you know maybe he doesn't see daenerys as as the as the answer just yet but i really I, i think that you know killing her I mean, on the one hand, it does, you know, inspire Drogo, and we'll get into this a little bit later. Uh, it does inspire Drogo to actually want to cross the cross the narrow sea and, and, and go and fight. Um, but then Drogo won't necessarily have the have a reason to if her and her unborn child are killed. And you know, he Drogo clearly has no loyalty to Viserys. Um, why would he? And and so it, yeah, it raises the question. And then the other contradiction that we see is is in that conversation with Magister Illyrio. He's talking about, you know, the wolf and, and the lion are going to fight and that will make it easier for, for the Targaryens to return. And, you know, because chaos, you know, and chaos in the realm would mean that uh, people would be willing to have somebody, you know, to have that savior come in, that, that savior queen. And that's what uh, Danny could be. And that makes a lot of sense. And then we see him talking to Ned and he's pleading with Ned for peace. He's telling Ned to, to you know, sac- to forget this whole thing about Joffrey and just, you know, go and live out his days on the wall. And, he's, and so you have, again, this contradiction of what does this guy really want? And what does, you know, telling Ned to live out his days on the wall really cause? Does he have enough faith in the fact that Joffrey would kill Ned to and, and that would inspire more war? And I don't because, know because that... necessarily because he gen- I think he genuinely believes that. Why would he even bother going to Ned to tell him this stuff? I think that he did he did want Ned to survive and he was one of the people that when Joffrey had proclaimed bring me his head, Sir Ellen, mm-hmm. that he, he I yeah. saw he him ran run over. over. Yeah. He ran over and started talking with Joffrey and you'd you'd assume that he was in shock and saying, What are you doing? We said that we would agree to this. Yeah. That's one of the few um, moments in the series where we ever see him you know sort of react to what's going on around him the only other time really being uh after Tyrion kills tywin and he gets on the boat at the end of season four you know he, he never really reacts yeah. to what's going on and in, in that moment clearly he wasn't expecting that and, and i believe you're right there so again it, it raises the question was he did he think that maybe just Think things weren't ready. The realm wasn't ready to to go to war. Or do you think that m- maybe there would be other there would be another chance to to cause this war to create chaos to allow Danny to to come home and and rule the Iron or at least a Targaryen to come home and rule the Seven Kingdoms? And or maybe we're going to find out in season five that he's working against the Targaryens. Maybe we're going to find out in season five he's working. Uh, you know, he's sort of a, an inside man over there, and he's he's. You know, trying to convince them that he's working against the the Lannisters and the Starks when really he's he's working for the Lannisters or or maybe even for the Baratheons or something. You know, it's 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 an interesting question to to pose of what is this guy really after? And uh, yeah, you know, it will likely, like you said, we'll likely get some more answers 
in season five when that premieres in April. But let, let's talk about another member of the small council, and that's Renly Baratheon, Robert's, I guess, Robert's youngest brother. Um, you know, we see, you know, in the, those first episodes, we don't see too much of him other than, you know, his his relationship with uh, Loras Tyrell is, is established. Um, but in this one, we really see the differences between him and, and Robert, and we see them on that hunting trip. And Renly kind of calls out Robert on his, you know, the way Robert looks back at the past. And, you know, Robert is always talking about, ah, oh, the great wars and blah. And, and, and Renly sort of calls him out on it. Like, what was so great about it? Everyone was dying. And we see in that moment, we really see how much he, he doesn't like his brother. And we can sort of see that, you know, this idea that, you know, that Loras has placed in his mind of, you know, you could be king. And Renly clearly is seeing that this, this in his mind that, you know, I would never do that. This would make me a better king. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? Yeah, I do. I think that for Renly Baratheon, he he do, he does think that he could be a better king. And to be honest, when you look at the other candidates, you wouldn't necessarily refute that statement. I yeah. think that he is one of the ones that the public would become endeared to. He seems like a benevolent character, um, and he doesn't seem to like the idea of of, of war in particular, or or, or at least. Um, the violence, I would say, he seems uh, pretty much um, against the notion of. When it, partly, when that was revealed in the in his talk with his brother there, when he says that you know, oh well, when we had dragons and rebellions, you know, was that really a greater time? And also that moment when he and Solaris have that the their individual chat in while he while he's shaving while Solaris is shaving <laughs> Renly. Yep. And you know, he, he when he he cuts his body, he says, you know, well, you got to get used to this. You have to be used to this blood when you become king. And so I think that Renly would be the ideal candidate. But again, in terms of the line of succession and the way that this period works, it just would. The only way it would happen is if he usurped the throne, the same way that Robert Baratheon did. And uh, again, he, he is an empathetic character. And, Again, his his demise in season two, I think, was it was sad, but I think it was still a little bit underwhelming. I it's only really by rewatching these episodes and 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 uh, season one and season two in particular that I really began to find Renly more likable because I actually cared what what <laughs> cared about his character more when I first watched it. He seemed like a bit of a um, an incidental character, subordinate to the likes of Ned, the, the Starks and the Lannisters. But he's actually quite a crucial figurehead, and I do think that he would have made the ideal candidate. But am I surprised? Well, am I surprised that when he finally meets his demise in season two? Not particularly. No. Um, I think that he is too, in some ways, a bit like Neddy, maybe too nice a guy to be taking that position. Yeah, that's that's the that's the thing about about these all these potential kings. You know, the ones that would probably be good kings like Ned. Well, we kind of talked about that. Ned may not be the best king, but, you know, like Renly or even Rob, uh, they wind up dead. Whereas, you know, I mean, Joffrey eventually dies, but, you know, Stannis is still alive. Uh, You know, Stannis, it's the fact that Stannis and Joffrey are, are the last two standing is kind of kind of says something about what it takes to actually be king. And, and it's it's kind of unfortunate. And like you said, the good guys don't necessarily make it to the throne and and, and i agree with you yeah i, I think that that renly did, does sort of become you know it, i think 
if if you can't have Rob as king, then then Renly would be your your second choice, and and ultimately, it doesn't work out that way. Um, I want to talk a bit about Joffrey in in these episodes, and specifically that that moment that he uh, beheads Ned. Um, of course, I think this really seals to everyone his his sort of ultimate villainy and his sadistic nature in that moment because he ultimately in this scene we realize how out of control he is and how little control even someone like Cersei has over him and and to to me it just sort of shows you know that Joffrey is ultimately you know he is the bad guy in this series for the time being and so I, I, I'm curious what did that that scene where Joffrey actually has Ned's head cut off despite his earlier agreements with Sansa and, and Cersei. What did that say about him to you? I think one that's said about Joffrey is that he is this malevolent, malign, and selfish character, really. He he seems to work a lot on impulse, and he really... It's almost like in his mind, psychologically, he thinks to himself, I could do it this way. I could, I could go down the route of letting Ned Stark go, and... And, and, and serving at the wall, mm-hmm. or I could, or I could try this. I, I could try a new. I, I, I could actually just cut his head off. He, he seems so sadistic and twisted, doesn't he? he seems the, the thing is, he seems to get pleasure out of it. Yeah, and he, he doesn't just do it for the sake. Of, well, he, he seems to do it because he, he he enjoys. He gets something out of it. It's as though um, it gets the adrenaline pumping, really. And I think that. That sadistic nature is just even even worse when you think about how how he portrays this facade up until episode nine mm-hmm. of him being this this benevolent king who yes I'll listen to Sansa and as long as he pledges the to me then I will let him live mm-hmm. and then afterwards in episode ten when he takes Sansa up to look at Ned Stark's yeah. head on the pike. <laughs> And and he said, and she says, "I thought you promised mercy." He says, "Well, I did. I gave him a clean cut." And you're thinking, "Well, that's not really what yeah. was going on here. What does that? How does that entail mercy?" But in his twisted mind, it does. Um, and and it seems like he he's a bit of a control freak in that respect, isn't he? That he he wants everyone to accept his legitimacy, and if they don't, then he will punish them in the worst possible ways. Um, whether it's beheading or, or worse, when you see that guy gets his tongue pulled out yeah. <laughs> uh, of, of, of the singer and then you see the pikes of, of people's yeah. heads. But what's even worse is that he's only a kid, yeah. really. And he's not even, it's not like he's this battle-hardened warrior. He's not like Stannis. He's never been involved in a war. He's this meekly selfish and just naive child really yeah, there's nothing you can I mean, blame when, his... when it comes to yeah. season two of the battle of blackwater he's the one who one of the first people to head town and run you know yeah he's not going to get he's not going to stand on the front lines though and, and maybe you could see if he oh well at least you know he gets in amongst the fight no he doesn't he just sits on the chair and orders people to do his bidding yeah um and he doesn't get involved anyway himself he doesn't go out on the front lines he doesn't he's not he's not i mean he doesn't say like oh let's go to the vanguard um, and, and let's, let's take this frontal assault. He st- stays at King's Land and sits on the throne, and then he says, oh, well, I'll relieve my duties to my mother on board. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not the type of king you really want to be seeing no. on the throne, and he, he is the exemplification of the corruption of of the Lannister, Lannister, Lannister regime yeah. under Joffrey. Yeah, you mentioned it. You know, He's just a kid. He, he, there's nothing... 
you know, there's nothing in his past that would really, you know, inform this this um, evil nature. You know, he doesn't suffer from PTSD or anything like that. He hasn't had something horrible happen to him. Really, it's just his spoiled nature and the way he was brought up being told he would be the king and he would be all powerful. And, and then I'm sure there's just something in his personality that is just in his in his genes or, or, or what have you, where he, he is just evil and he takes pleasure from cutting people's heads off or ripping their tongues out. And it, it, it's really, it, it's quite disturbing. And, and the fact that it comes from a child is, is even more distressing. Uh, but let's get into Joffrey's, well, grandfather, I guess, Tywin Lannister. I know he's one of your favorite characters on the show. And, and we we kind of, in these episodes, we see his relationship really with Jamie and with Tyrion. So I want to kind of focus in on them. We'll start with, with Jamie. And they have this discussion uh, early on. It's the first, it's our introduction to Tywin, where they have this discussion about, you know, Jamie cares too much about the opinion or the pe- opinion people have of him. And Jamie kind of calls Tywin out on this in that um, he's Tywin is all worried about the house's reputation, the house's legacy. And, you know, I kind of agree with Jamie. Is there really a difference? I mean, do you think there's a difference between, you know, what Jamie cares about and the people, the way people think of what people think of him and what Tywin thinks of what Tywin cares about, which is the opinion of the house in general? I think so. I think there is a difference because for Jamie, his is main, mainly based on van, uh, vainglory, really, in the Vanity. sense that you know he's quiet. He cares about people's perceptions of him, and he seems to act. He act, seems to act differently towards that. I mean, in a sense that he's been branded this kingslayer, mm-hmm. and so he, he, when, when it comes to fighting. He he has it has to be a clean death. It has to be a, right. a, a proper battle. It has to um, abide to the to the chivalric code, as it were, in this period. And when someone like someone stepped in and speared Ned's leg, he hits the other guy and leaves him to it. He says, "Oh, it wouldn't have been a clean death." Yeah. And then you know that's when you know Tywin scoffs and says, "You know, clean death." Like, what do you? Is those saying? What does that matter? What's a clean? Is he is he going to be alive or dead? That's the, that's what he cares about. He's he is very de facto, matter of fact, really. And I think for Tywin, the perception of the house is different because with Tyrion captured, it does undermine the authority of the house because people will perceive the Lannisters to be be in a debilitated state, i.e., they've lost one of their well, one of their Tywin's lost one of his sons. Um, who is captured to another house, um, and then and then you know, the Baratheons, the Starks, will think, you know, maybe Tywin isn't as strong as people think. Um, he's, he, you know, if he can't even keep his sons in, in control, or people also maybe think, well, why is why is Tyrion captured? What does this say? About, so what does this say about the Lannisters? Clearly, they're not as benign, or um, you know, they they won't pay their debts, and and, and seemingly. This is the way that they treat their people. So, I mean, it, I, I can I can understand why Tywin believes fervently in establishing the honor of the house. He says I, we could establish a dynasty that lasts for a thousand years, or we could rot in the ground like the Targaryens. And I think his motto is, it, I, I think it's I think it's fitting for this period, really. And really, war is one of those critical elements. Um, contributing to the demise and founding of a dynasty. 
So I can completely concur with what Tywin states here. But what, what, did you, what do you make of See, Tywin? And, and I think you have a different opinion. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I think that they care about different things. I think Jamie cares about um, people thinking, you know, he is honorable. He is the best. I, I do think Jamie cares that people think he, he is honorable. Um, and we really see that come to light in, in later seasons when we, you know, you know, people, people think he's, he, he's, he's not honorable because he killed the Mad King, but I think he wants people to think he is honorable. And we really see that in, when he opens up to Brienne and he talks about, you know, actually killing the Mad King and, and then seeing Ned Stark immediately after that. And so, and so I think that's what Jamie cares about. Whereas Tywin cares about, um, being feared and he wants his house to be feared and ultimately, you know, Jamie could be a great warrior, but nobody could care about that. And Tywin could be, you know, horrifically evil and nobody could care about that. They would get similar results in in individual conflicts, but it wouldn't necessarily change the way people perceive them. And I really do think it, at the end of the day, it just comes down to for, for both of them. They're both worried about public perceptions of either themselves or of their house. And I don't think there's really a difference. I think it, it's just... I think you know the debate that they have is is kind of over semantics and not actually um it doesn't actually I don't think there's actually a difference between what they care about. I think that you know they may focus on different things specifically, you know with Tywin's being feared with with Jamie it's it's being honorable or respected as a as a warrior. Um but at the end of the day their main focus both of them is what will the people think of think of me because Tywin clearly does not like Tyrion, but he's willing to start a war over him. So that's he only cares about the way people perceive it. Because if if he didn't start a war, people would think, oh well, Tywin Lannister is weak. Jaime um, could have killed Ned very easily, but he didn't because he didn't want people to think that he's dishonorable. So at, at the end of the day, I think they're both. I think we really see this, you know, the father son similarities in this in this sense that they're both interested in the same thing. Um, which is what people care think about them, but they argue over the specifics of it. But really, for me at least, it boils down to the same thing. Yeah, I could agree with that. I think you have changed my mind. <laughs> Points, my own interpretation. Points, Points for you. <laughs> for, um, for those of you playing along, I, I, I think it's the way it's, you're completely right. It's the way it's, it's the ways that people perceive them. It's not necessarily the idea of perception mm -hmm. themselves. I mean, that's that's similar. They do care about perception. You know, as you said, Tywin cares about his house being feared by others, and and Jamie cares about the way people perceive him as as a, warrior. As a, as a chivalric knight. Yeah, um, and that, that that's really a distinct. I mean, that's that's the distinct difference is the way that they're perceived, and I think for me, I, I guess I got that interpretation because I always view Tywin as being very pragmatic, and that's really epitomized. In that scene, when you see him just cutting open that boar or um, Deer, yeah. whatever he is, you know, he's getting his hands stuck in and dirty, isn't he? Mm -hmm. You know, and um, he really is a very—he's—he's he's a prudent, manipulative, pragmatic individual. Really, he knows how to play the game. Mm -hmm. um, but as you said, maybe that could also be construed as the fact that when he goes to war against uh, against the Starks, it's really. You know, it's it's actually misplaced. It's actually been blinded by his 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 ambition to sustain the honor of the house. Although I will also admit that his hand was relatively forced. 
Yeah. Because that was at a time when he was summoned to court to mm-hmm. answer for his crimes. Well, sure, yeah. And so at that point, he didn't necessarily have any real other option, you could argue. Because yeah. if he did go to court, Again, then he would have been arrested. Yeah, and he would have been perceived as, as weak. The fact that yeah, you know, Tywin Lannister exactly. was arrested. So again, it goes back to the the whole perception issue of, of you know he, he's worried about what people think of his house, which is ultimately all not not that different from what what Jamie thinks. Because I mean, Tywin really, if if he didn't want to, he didn't have to go to war with the Starks. I mean, he's going to be in a pretty good position very very soon with the with uh with Joffrey on the on the throne. I mean, his 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 daughter is queen. And, you know, his grandson very shortly will be king. So he's not – so if he's worried about establishing this, this dynasty, he doesn't have to go to war with the Starks to establish it. He can he could have done that. He could have let them have Tyrion and, you know, focus more on what was going on in King's Landing, which is what he does in, in season four. And instead of instead of doing that, we, we see more of, a, you know, his, his, his caring about, you know, the perception of his house leads him to – really engage the Starks in this war that he really didn't have to. I mean, sure, the uh the the, the Stark forces were, were coming for him and at that point, you know, he could have could have, you know, tried to fight them off, but he was go- he went to war before Ned Stark was even killed. And so, you know, once Ned Stark was killed, of course there's no chance to avoid a war. But before that, he could have done other things to avoid the war. So you know, I, I do think it all comes down to the perception. Uh, but let, let's talk a little bit about Tyrion and Tywin. We we learned for the we learned for the first time that, you know, Tyrion, um, Tyrion's mother died giving birth to him, and we see uh, that there's this very tense relationship between Tyrion and Tywin. That is, you know, we're constantly seeing that they're kind of on edge with each other, but there also seems to be this sort of begrudging respect that that Tywin gives Tyrion. Just the fact that he he names him Hand of the King in his in his stay is is very telling. I think that. You know, for as much as as Tywin is horrible, horrible to Tyrion, he does sort of respect him at the same time. Do you do you see the same thing, or do you see something different there? Oh yeah, there is certainly begrudging respect between those two characters. I think you look at the way he treats Tyrion. Although, you know, he it seems at first that he treat you know, he, and he has treated him in the quite disdain fashion, particularly. Um, you know when he says, "Well, you and the tr- when when Tyrion arrives with the Hills tribes, you know, and he goes and says something like, you know, your brother would never have been as captured as meekly yeah. as you were.' Yeah, you know, and it, and, it, and it seems as though the fact that Tyrion is not a warrior is is the main thing that I think infuriates him, and it also goes, the fact that goes he's back to war. his and, and well, it, it, I say that there's a lot of reasons why he hates Tyrion. Yeah, um, it goes back it, to the well, whole. It goes back to his birth, doesn't it? When yeah. his, his well, I was going to say. Died. I say it goes back to Tywin's issues with the perception of his house. I mean, the fact that this 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 person who is a, who's a dwarf, and in in those times dwarfs were looked down on looked down upon a lot. I mean, you just see in the show he's constantly being called the imp or the half man and all the, these sorts of things. So that one is is going to be an embarrassment to Tywin. And the other thing is he's he's not a warrior. He's you know as much as he he, he is an intellectual at times. He's also a a, a drunk. Who, who spends all of his time around brothels and, and that that's a, you know, again, that's embarrassing for Tywin and it doesn't reflect well on the Lannister, on the Lannister house. Yeah. No, I completely see that point of view to be honest. I, I do think that in a way he does, 
he is like a manifestation, a physical manifestation of of people's perceptions of the house. When they look at Tyrion, they to talk, for Tywin at least, it seems as though this is you know you you've in, you've created an inbred here. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, Tywin doesn't even know about the incestuous relationship yet between Cersei and Jaime, but. You know, when he does hear of it in season four, he's in denial about it. He can't believe it. Yeah, it's just it. Could, it's like the worst thing that could ever happen. <laughs> yeah, for Tywin, and he just wouldn't. He just does not want to accept it. But in, in terms of some interaction with Tyrion, yeah, it's definitely that scene in episode ten where I think he realizes Tyrion is actually more perceptive and intuitive about yeah. events than than many of actually his other generals. When and talking about the ramifications and. Well, of Jamie's capture, and they, they talk about what their next move should be. Let's sue for peace, and then Tyrion knocks that goblet over and, yeah. and says, "Look, there's your peace when you cut off Ned Stark's head. You're mm. never going to bring him to the table now." And I think you know it's it's a big statement, and, and Tywin I think looks at that and thinks, "Yeah, you're right." Um, and to actually give him that responsibility of becoming Hand of the King, um, again, it's it, it, it is. A, a sign of compassion you could you could argue but again it's the fact that he is his Tywin's son you know he could have chosen un, um, Tyrion's uncle but instead he went with Tyrion because Tyrion is his son who is still uncaptured yeah yeah and <laughs> and, and, um, and I think that's why it's part of his blood part of his heritage and his and his dynasty that's what he wants to keep hold of and then you look at the power base then you've got Joffrey Cersei and Tyrion, all Lannisters in King's Landing, pretty much controlling the throne. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we we kind of see in these in in Tyrion's interactions in the earlier episodes, sort of how he is both the perfect man for this job of being on the small council with people like Varys and Littlefinger. Of, of uh, you know, he's a he's a quick talking kind of guy who's able to you know talk his way out of a whole bunch of bad situations but at the same time we can also see how that is an absolute embarrassment to tywin and why tywin doesn't necessarily like this because you know you see the whole the whole trial by combat thing you know he he says he's going to confess his crimes and then he goes out there and just makes a mockery of the whole system you know confessing to all these um, ridiculous crimes from his past um and then you know he has Braun fight for him which you know again you look at what what jamie would have done jamie would have fought for himself and 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 probably won, and then you see Tyrion's interaction with the Hill Tribes, <laughs> which is again some of the more hilarious stuff. Is, is you know he he talks his way out of this this horrible situation, and then shows up at the Lannister camp with this this group of, of, of you know barbarians, quote unquote. And then there's that there's that scene where where Tyrion is describing you know the the fighting that the infighting going on between the various hill tribes and just the names that were chosen for, you know, Shagger and Dolph and, and all that great stuff going on. And, and, and you can see how that would be an absolute embarrassment to Tywin. But at the same time, the fact that the Tyrion was able to, you know, get out of that situation where he likely would have been killed, um, shows that he's probably the best man for the job in King's Landing. Uh, but let's let's get into uh, let's get into Tywin's enemy. Let's get his uh, his the uh, his the person who he's fighting in this war, and let's talk a little bit about Rob Stark. Rob is another one that we didn't really get to talk about much last week. Um, but uh, to be fair, he didn't do much in the first five episodes. But in in these uh, in these next episodes, we kind of see 
you know, we see Rob both as sort of this great person, but then there are sort of things that he does that you kind of wonder about. And so, you know, at first he he's very um, hesitant to go to war and, you know, Theon is trying to convince him to go to war, trying, trying, trying to, to convince him, but he's not, he doesn't see war as, you know, as a, a potential, you know, he doesn't see this as his, you know, moment to be great, which I think is one, you know, something that you probably want in a king and, uh, or at least a good leader. But then we also see that he is very uh, successful in his uh, in, in in being a, a warrior when he fights off the wildlings who attack Bron or Bran Bran Bron names are too close, um, and and so we sort of see him as as this good character, and even when the war starts, he has that very interesting interaction with the spy where he lets the spy live despite the fact that everybody who he's with thinks that he should have should have killed him. And then we get to the point where we sort of go, oh, maybe he is not as moral as we once thought when he sacrifices those 2,000 men to distract Tywin um, in order to, to fight a different battle and ultimately take Jaime Lannister as his hostage. And yet he still shows remorse from it. So it, it shows that he's not happy with this. And so I'm curious on your take on Rob and specifically that decision that he made to sacrifice those 2000 men in a battle against the, the hill tribes and Tywin and, and Tyrion and, and, and Bronn. Yes. It's the, it's the casualties of war. Really, isn't yeah. It is. Yeah. I think the it's, it's, that, it's the question. Does the ends justify the means? Yeah. It's a hard one. It's mm-hmm. a hard one. You have to weigh up really the political over the human cost. Um, I, the thing is as a result of, of sending 2,000 men to their deaths. I mean, he recognizes this, to yeah. be fair, as you said. Yeah. He recognizes that this was a very tough decision to make, and and he has sent 2,000 men to their graves. He doesn't make the decision lightly. No, exactly, which you, know, you could argue whether that's fair or not, really, because ultimately he has, regardless of how he feels about it. Mm-hmm. But he has acquired Jamie Lannister. He's, he's detained and... Pardon me, sorry. And he's apprehended Jamie Lannister as as a hostage. So politically, that's a huge gain. That's a mm-hmm. huge success. And you wonder, on the other hand, if he didn't split the forces the way he did, and he split it say fifty fifty, would it would it have concluded in two defeats? Mm-hmm. And that's the question you have to weigh up and ask yourself. Um, and you can look at the other hand, 2,000 men have been sent to their graves, but a majority of the 18,000 men, uh, granted yeah. some of them will have died, but most of them survive. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe more so if he had, than if he had split his forces. It's a question to ask yourself. Yeah. But for me, Rob is, he seems such a benign and benevolent figurehead, and, he, and he's fighting for the right reason, I would say, that he wants to liberate his father and he won't yeah. bend the knee down to Joffrey. And again, it's this, this connection to family that he wants he wants to release his father and, and, and remove Joffrey from the throne. So I think that, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily think it's the most malign thing he's done. And, and of course, it's a flaw. Every, every character in this series yeah. has flaws. But compared to someone, you know, it's not, as we said, it's not like he's Joffrey and he's not sadistic about yeah. it. He didn't say, yes, I gleefully send 2,000 men to their graves, or he's not like Ramsay Snow. Mm-hmm. He understands that this is the true cost of war. But do you, do you have a different interpretation on that? No, I, 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 I'm kind of with you. I, you know, it, it's, it's, 
it adds layers to his character. You know, you, you wonder, uh, you know, he, he deals with this, this idea that, you know, he doesn't do it lightly. Um, you can bet that he, he, he takes it a lot harder than someone, even someone like Tywin Lannister would have, you know, sending these men to their graves. And so, you know, you, you see that he probably is sort of the, the right kind of ruler in that he, or at least the right kind of leader in that he, he he's going to he's willing to make the tough decision to make the right tactical decision but he's not he's not necessarily happy about it he's not all raw raw let's go fight he's sort of he reminds the people that you know 2000 men just sacrificed their lives so that we could have this victory this is not necessarily a day for for absolute celebration and and so you really see that that rob has taken on some of the best qualities from his father and and uh, you know that makes you know it makes sense when he has his his meltdown in, in the tenth episode where he's ruining his sword on the on that tree after he hears about the, the news about Ned, you kind of you you realize that there probably was a very cl- close relationship there, and and Rob obviously looked up to Ned and and loved Ned and learned a lot from him, because this seems like the kind of thing that Ned Stark would have done. It really does. You know, he would have made the right tactical decision, but he ne- wouldn't necessarily have been happy about it. And and I think that speaks volumes about Rob's character and about his relationship with his father. Well, let's get into Rob's brother then, or his kind of sort of half brother, uh, Jon Snow, because we, John has a very interesting sort of series of adventures at the wall. Um, it starts off with him, you know, he swears his, he takes his vows. He takes the black and then he's made a steward, uh, which was, or a steward, which was never what he wanted. And you see him sort of dealing with these, with with the uh, emotion of you know being angry you know he he sees himself as as better than everybody um even though you know the whole point of the night's watch is that nobody's better than anybody and it, i thought it was was funny that only sam understood the reason why john was made the steward specifically the lord commander mormont's steward and you know sam who was you know clearly st- sam's probably my, one of my favorite characters and so to to see him sort of you know, be the one to figure it out and, and you know, sort of be the, the smart one uh, and, and show John the, the right way there, I, I thought was interesting. And then John finds out about Ned and he has another major reaction. Basically, this, this whole this whole these whole five episodes are about John sort of having to deal with the fact that he's now disconnected. And, you know, we see him. He has three major meltdowns. I mean, there was that first one that was just describing then. He tries to kill Sir Alistair when he calls him a, a traitor's bastard, and then then he uh, when he hears about his father's or he hears about Ned's death, he then is about to leave the Night's Watch. So I, I'm I want I mean I want to ask you you know what did you think of seeing John go through these sort of various trials and, and tribulations? I mean, do you, does does that ultimately inform the? I, I think that this ultimately informs the character that we see in, in season four of, you know, who's absolutely committed to the Night's Watch because he, you know, he already knows that there's, you know, he's been through enough to realize that there's no way he can, he can leave it. Yeah, I, John, at this point, Jon Snow is really learning about what is important in this world. And he has to make that decision, doesn't he, between mm-hmm. love and duty, which is the one to follow. Yeah. And for him, it's difficult because... Well, difficult based on his upbringing yeah. to actually come to this decision. He, I mean, Ned Stark's been his father, but for the most part, yeah. he's been really 
estranged and alienated from the Stark household from Catelyn at least. Yeah. Um, granted, Robert's been like a brother to him, and Ned has cared for him, but he's always been that bastard son, um, the the little runt of the of the cub, as it were. Um, and you just for for him, Ned being captured is hugely significant because yeah. that for. The Rob is the father figure, and he hasn't he hasn't got that. And if he knew if he loses Ned, he hasn't got a mother either. Mm-hmm. He's all on his own, and he he needs other people around him. I believe, yeah. And that's what he keeps doing. He keeps looking for father figures throughout this, whether it's Commander Mormon or whether it's Mance Raider, um, or and, and also he cares about love in the, what we later see with the with the wildling lady, yeah. And of course with his friendship with Gren. Pip and Sam. Yeah. That's why he came back, isn't it? That's why he didn't desert and find his father or, um, sorry, not find his father because he can't help his brother. And, 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 and help his brother yeah. and aid his brother. It was because Sam, Pip and Gwen all came out and said, no, stick with us. We're brothers of the Night's Watch. And, and Mormon as well helps by stating that, do you think all of this political merry-go-round surrounding the Iron Throne means anything when we've got dead people rising up and yeah. attacking us. What does that even mean? And, and I think by the end of season one, John understands that two things, um, that duty is the important part, not love. Yeah. Um, but you could argue, well, no, actually, it, it, no, he does stick to that. Despite the love he has for the wildling girl, he sti- still sticks with Juicy, doesn't yep, he? In the end he of does. Um, which is something that, in contrast, Rob does not do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then another another point to add on to that then is that by the end he, he sticks with the Night's Watch and he realises that the, the crucial purpose to his life is to end the White Walkers or impede their, t- yeah. their eyes rather than aiding his brother and and taking the Iron Throne. But what did you, what did you make of, of Jon Snow and and the, and the conflict around him? I guess between the notion of love and duty. Well, yeah, it, it's interesting. I think that this is something that that anybody who comes from sort of a highborn family that goes to the the Night's Watch has to deal with, and that's what uh, you know makes that that whole sequence that he has with with Meister Aemon, aka Aemon Targaryen, uh, all the more interesting is because you know, Eamon sort of explains to him, like, look, I, I've been there. I, I know what it's like to have to, to deal with this. Um, and, you know, John really kind of has to go through this himself. He, he has sort of these moments where he really builds, where he, you know, he, he leaves or he's ready to leave. Um, and ultimately, you know, he, he just chooses to stay and he realizes that his, his new family, the people that really care about him are there with him at, in a, at, at the wall because, you look at what happened in the in the first episode. He was he was very upset with his family because he was upset with with Ned for not telling him what the wall was like. He was upset with everyone for not telling him what the wall was like. And clearly, he has no no love for for Catelyn, um, just because of their their estranged relationship. And and so it is in that moment when when Sam Pip and and and, and what's the other guy's name? Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, when when Sam and Pip and 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 those guys. Uh, you know seek him down they they realize you know he realizes that these are the people that really care about him this is his real family these are the people he should stick with and then you can contrast this again like like you said with his relationship with egret where he chooses duty over love or even when he finds out about the death of rob you know he he doesn't react the same way he doesn't 
doesn't go out to fight for Rob, even though they were they were brothers or or they 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 and they had a good relationship. Um, he sort of you know he's sad and he, he has to deal with it emotionally, but he doesn't run off the same way he does in these episodes. Um, it, it just shows how much he's grown uh, since then, and I think these are sort of this is a crucial moment for him. Uh, realizing that his his new family, his true family, is at the wall. Uh, well, let, now I think we should uh, we should transition and go go across the narrow sea and uh, and talk about what's going on in the east because a lot of interesting and, and big moments happen in the east in in these episodes. Um, so we'll start with Viserys because his, uh, his, his you know he's the first one to one to go. Um, we see him realize the way that the uh, the Dothraki love Daenerys and, and not him and decides that he really should leave that, that, that is, you know, his way out that he sort of thinks he has a, he can find a better way to, uh, to become King. And you really get to sort of see the, the thing that, that Viserys never really understands what, what Danny understands is that she has to become acclimated to the Dothraki culture. And in order for them to, to love her and want to follow her, um, and that's what she does. And, you know, at a certain point in these episodes, Khal Drogo is even willing to be the first Dothraki to cross the Narrow Sea. Um, but Viserys doesn't understand this. And he has these sort of outbursts. And uh, I, I just want to know, what, what do you think of, of Viserys' actions in these episodes? Yeah, I think that Viserys' actions really get found found out by the end. That he just loses all authority and power because he just he, he he doesn't embed himself into the Dothraki culture and he doesn't understand that they love Daenerys mm. and, and and then when he does realize that he starts thinking well there's there's no reason for me to stay here then because I haven't got my army and he wants to take the dragon eggs leave hopefully get a ship and buy an army mm-hmm and then he can't do that because everyone is loyal to Daenerys. The power has shifted. The power struggle that was evident in the last couple of episodes has clearly turned in favor of Daenerys. Mm-hmm. And Viserys just can't deal with it. He can't cope with it psychologically. So the way he does it, he gets he gets intoxicated, and then he does something really stupid, which is to you know go into their tent and and draw his sword upon Daenerys, mm-hmm. uh, a figure who they love, and something that he cited earlier in the episode but to be honest i didn't really have any sympathy for his death no to be honest, he's one of the few in the series <laughs> that i was actually quite glad passed away because he wasn't he was quite a malign figure wasn't he and even though it seemed like well he had lost all power and he just he really just became this pathetic figurehead didn't he because he had no he had no real idea of what to do next and he kept on screaming and clamoring that i am a son of the dragon, I am the dragon and all of this nonsense when he wasn't and he got found out by the end mm-hmm. uh, when we compare it to Daenerys when that, that hot boiling whatever it was that some sort of fire was pretty much poured onto his head yeah uh, and he just and then, it, and then his face just well you know we, we all know what happened to him at the end so it was, <laughs> it was it was a pretty brutal end I have to say but again not totally unwarranted and I feel that Daenerys is sorry, uh, Viserys even. Um, he he, ne- he never really stood out as a figure that was that was of kingly material, mm-hmm. and 
he was he wasn't someone who could who would be able to command respect and in, in that way he was quite similar to Joffrey. Yeah. If if Joffrey was in the same boots as as Viserys, I think that the same result would have happened. Yeah. Um, you know, Viserys would have been quite sadistic and twisted as this leader, and you know, if if we were swapping shoes, I mean, and then and then Joffrey would have equally bit the dust. I think there's a lot of parallels between those two characters. Um, but what did you make of this, uh, Viserys? Yeah, well, I, I agree with everything with what you said. You know, we we see his downfall here based largely on his his own you know his, his inability to understand um, that in order that a good king uh, or a good ruler. Uh, doesn't think, see themselves as better than than others and you know i think that's what what made uh you know marjorie tyrell so dangerous to 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 cersei later on in, in the series is that she sort of began to show joffrey that the people could love him and that the people could appreciate him and you know i think you know uh cersei had trying been trying to convince uh, joffrey that to be feared and and that you know, Marjorie sort of said, "No, you don't have to be feared. You can be loved," and uh, that's the same thing that that Viserys doesn't understand. It's it's better to be loved than feared, I think, at least. Um, and you know, I, I think we're going to see that kind of play out in, in future seasons. And he chose fe- he chose to be feared and or to think he w- could be feared, and that ultimately led to his death because he wasn't that fearful. He wasn't that frightening. You know, in that moment where he he draws his sword there, you know, really, if he, if anything happened to. Uh, to to Danny, he would have been killed instantly. Um, and what is he going to do? Is he going to fight Cal Drogo? That that sounds like Littlefinger versus versus Ned's brother. There, you know, no, no, that's not going to end well for him. He's clearly going to lose that. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. It's it's one of the least sympathetic deaths in the entire series, which is which is horrible to say, but it, it, it's true. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about Cal Drogo in in, in these episodes, and we we really see that that. Drogo, his uh, his love for for Daenerys, or at least his his love for having her as a as a as his uh, as his wife as a status symbol, really comes through in these episodes when you know there's the attempt on on her life, and he finally, and in that moment, he finally swears to uh, to go and take the Iron Throne, and you know, really, he hadn't been interested in it beforehand. You know, he he was never really interested in in going and crossing the Narrow Sea, and he finally, in this moment, says. Uh, yes, let's do it. So, uh, do you think that shows that he actually loves Daenerys, or is it more? Is it still the whole thing that she's just a, a symbol of power for him? I don't know. I, it's hard to read him, really, isn't it? I mm-hmm. think that it's probably they have a a similar relationship in, or similar motivations in the sense that each for each other they are symbols of power, mm-hmm. and. I mean, he doesn't understand the concept of a throne. He's like, well, you know, what what is that? What what is this so-called seat in Westeros? Why why bother? Why mm-hmm. you know what, what what does that even mean? Um, and then I think he starts to learn about this idea of a status symbol, and and he wants to bestow this gift upon Daenerys, mm-hmm. and he then has this really impassionate and relentless desire to actually acquire this seat by the time of Episode Seven, when he feels that. This wine merchant, uh, which had attempted to poison Daenerys, um, you know, he wasn't going to stand for it anymore, and 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 his will, his iron will, to actually 
procure this phone became incredibly overt by the end of these episodes. Uh, sorry, uh, by the end of that episode, mm-hmm. and I think it's it, it, it clearly didn't work out in his favour. Um, and really, you could say that in part his downfall was was caused by Daenerys, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, in, with, with the slavers, and then that's when Khal Drogo had that duel with one of his Dothraki people, and then after that, when she implored that witch to perform her magics on him using blood magic, and then he just became a vegetated state. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that is it's quite a tragic end for Khal Drogo because, in spite of his brutality and savagery, I feel that. He, while she, while he considered her a status symbol, we did care for her, mm-hmm. um, and he wouldn't have gone to all of those lengths if he didn't have some affection for her. And, yeah. and in that respect, you could, when he stood up for it, you could say he's a quite a likable character. Um, but again, you can say that one of the main reasons for wanting to keep her around is because she was pregnant with the stallion upon his upon, well, mounted <laughs> upon his stallion, as it were. Right. So again, it is linked onto this political power idea. But what, what did he make of Carl Droko in his in his final days on this <laughs> godforsaken world? Yeah, yeah. Well, you bring bring up the the whole thing that uh, you know. Ultimately, I think I do think that Drogo is, is very fair and, and very kind to to Daenerys, and so I, I do think you're right that he does at, at least on some level care for her as more than just a, a status symbol. And I, you know, I I, I wonder if 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 we were to flip that around, if if Daenerys cares about him the same way because i you know i i want to look at daenerys a little bit because she you know she goes through all of this stuff i mean she eats the horse heart and she has, has goes she becomes part of the dothraki culture all with and she gains all this power and then she sees it all be taken away when when drogo falls off his horse and then so she turns to that witch um with the to use her her magic to bring him back and I, I wonder if if that from her was was more about power than than love, and, and I'm, I'm curious on your take. I think for Daenerys, I think for Daenerys, really, it's this. There is a bit of both in there as well. Mm-hmm. I think that predominantly, it's the the idea of power. Yeah. If she loses Drogo, she loses pretty much everything, and I think that's why she's so prepared to walk into that pyre at the end yeah um i mean i think she, she seems to have some sort of inclination that she would survive that but she yeah. wanted well when she when she walks into that pyre at the end this is why i think she's she's a little bit more concerned about power is that like she's she's at this point now where drogo is dead she's gone back to being nothing she started out as nothing basically in, in the, that first episode she was you know being basically being sold by her brother and she had she had no power and then all of a sudden she's in this relationship with Khal Drogo, where initially it didn't seem like she was going to have any power, but then all of a sudden she realized she did have this level of power. And with that power, she's, she, beca- she, she likes having that power. And then when Drogo dies, um, she likes having that power and she likes what she can do with that power. And, and kind of like Rob, to a certain extent, she does good things with that power. And then when Drogo dies, she loses that power. And so she, she sacrifices the baby and, and, and ultimately to bring Drogo back, but he's just in that comatose state. So at that point, she's she's lost everything. She is at nothing, and her only chance at regaining the power is to 
uh, is to try and have, bring these dragon eggs to life, uh, you know, hatch these dragon eggs. And so she, she walks into that pyre. Sure. She may think, okay, you know, I've had these other experiences with, with putting the eggs in the fire or, or stepping into the pool that was too hot. Um, where, you know, it seemed like I'm a little bit, uh, less sensitive to heat, but she, she had, she didn't know for sure. She could have easily have died in that flame, in those flames. Um, and so it was really a last ditch attempt from her to regain this power. And ultimately she, she made the right choice because, you know, three dragons were born and well, those three dragons become the, the key to her power and, and key to her being able to do some good in this, in this godforsaken world. Uh, so at least that that's my take on it. That's my read on it. On it. Do you have a have a different view? No, I think I would agree with that. To be honest, I think you're right in the sense that she didn't know it was it was still unpredictable as to what her fate would uh, would be when she walked into that fire uh, in in that pyre. But she had. You're right. She'd lost all of her power. She lost her influence. Um, it was constant reminders of that fact wasn't it Mm -hmm. by dissident Dothraki men who were saying well as soon as he dies you're nothing to me Mm -hmm. you're just um, you're just a commoner you're a foreigner Um, and and draw draw Mormon makes that point as well doesn't he when he says well it's not like in Westeros it won't just go down the lineage the dynasty it will go into the fiercest and the most powerful fighter Mm -hmm. and whoever wins that will not want any rivals yeah yeah. So with all of that in mind, I think she you're right, she comes to a place where she thinks, Well, I've lost everything. Um and yet by the end of it, when she walks into that fire, she not she has it's not that she has nothing, she pretty much has everything. She's got dragons now, and that makes her pretty much one of the most omnipotent people in yeah. Westeros. Not right now, but, but it, when they grow up mm-hmm. and the and the symbol that is. Uh, you know, people haven't seen dragons for generations. Well, it's going to be, it's it's a change of fortune for Daenerys. Yeah, and the other the other important thing that happens to her in, in these episodes is she does see slavery for the first time, and I think, you know, she realizes it's she thinks she does good by you know saving those slaves from from the uh, Dothraki, um, but she realizes she can't have any association with slavers, uh, at all, uh, because of because of what happens with that witch. And so, again, that informs her decision that she, she, again, she hates slavery, but she can only be a liberator. And she, you know, she can't be a part. She can't, you know, have any relations with the, with the slavers. And I think, you know, when she, when she gets that power through her dragons, she will remember uh, what she had seen there. And, and well, we know that she, she goes out and she seeks to be the, the freer of slaves. And I, I think these episodes are really, really crucial in her in her story it's really it's it's really the turning point for her where she she risks everything and she gets the ultimate reward and and we'll see how far that takes her if that will take her to the iron throne or not uh so uh before we transition into quotes is there anything else you want to bring up uh from these episodes i think we cover most of it well well i say most of it. we've covered a lot of it <laughs> <laughs> we've covered a lot today so i i'd say that i've got no more to add all right well then let's get into some of our favorite quotes from these episodes so i'll throw it to you first you have a a favorite quote or two yes i will go i i have to say i do quite like um lord baelish's line that we mentioned earlier i think i'll I'll definitely put that one up there he says 
well, I realise I'm not going to win by fighting them, but rather by fucking them. <laughs> um, it's quite crude, but yeah. in a nutshell, it just epitomises what Lord Baelish is all about, I guess. So what about yourself? I'll, I'll hand it over to you to choose a quote. Well, I, I have to go with a, with a Sam quote, and it's when, uh, you know, when, when John is going to leave and, and Pip shows up and tells his, his story about why he wound up at the wall. And, you, know, you know, he always wanted to be a singer, and then Sam... <laughs> Or, or no, um, no. Uh, it was uh, John who said he always wanted to be a, su- a steward, and and Sam says I always wanted to be a wizard. I just love that line. It was so so <laughs> random and so hilarious, and it, it's one of the reasons that, that you know Sam is sort of the comic relief at times at the wall, and and that's uh, one of the reasons he's my favorite character. But uh, I'll throw it back over to you if you have another one. Yeah, I do like the. I, you may well have this one as well. I, I think you might well have said it, but it's the. It's the moment um, when Arya's with her dancing master, yes. and um, and the Bravosi has been uh, attacked by these Lannister guardsmen, and he says, "What do we say to the God of Death?" And Arya replies, "Not today." Yeah, such it's a great, such a good line, yeah, such, such a good line that. And a... I'm going to miss that Bravosi. He yeah. was well, the, great character. Well, there are there are theories about him. There's a theory that he became. Um, oh, Jack Jack and Hakar, the uh, the faceless man from season two. I don't mm-hmm. know how. I don't know. I don't know if I believe theory. it. I don't know if I believe it, but it's it's a theory. It's out there. It's a possibility. Uh, for me, another one. Uh, it's a little exchange between Sir Barristan and uh, and Littlefinger. It's it's when uh, Joffrey is essentially fired, uh, Sir Barristan, and he's you know taking off his his robe and and his armor in the in the uh, you know in the the royal chambers there in the right in front of the throne and. He's going, I am a knight, and I shall die a knight. And then Littlefinger pipes in with a naked knight, apparently. And I thought that was a, a good, uh, good, good comedic line. Uh, so do you, have a, do you have another one? Uh, I've just got one, one final one, I believe. And um, it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's the one where, um, oh my gosh, it's just, it's just gone for me now, actually. I think it was, oh... No, I don't know. Uh, something about no, it's gone. It's gone. It's, it's gone. gone. Well, okay. Well, I've got, I've got one. Right, more. I'll throw it back to you. I got one more. It was, it's a, it's a Varys line. It's when he's talking to, uh, to Ned in the dungeons there, and uh, and uh, Ned is asking if, if Varys will free him, and Varys says, "When you look at me, do you see a hero?" And I thought that was a very interesting line, and it really speaks about, speaks to, speaks to Varys's character that you really don't know what he is. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Well. We don't really know. It's it, it's hard to tell, and so I, yeah, I quite it's like come that back now. to me now. Oh, good. Uh, here we good. are. It's uh, it's that scene in the in the Winterfell, um, I guess their the, the food place, as it were, <laughs> the Great Hall. I think is a better yeah. term to use there. And um, that wolf has just bitten off Lord Umberford's uh, Umberford's uh, fingers, and he and, and he says, "Your meat." Your meat is very tough, and then they all start bursting out laughing. I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a great little way to bond. I guess I've never done that before. Like, yeah, someone, someone bite, you know, someone bit my, a wolf bit my finger off. That's not the first thing I'd say, but you know, maybe yeah. that's what it's like in the north. I guess that, I guess that must be a, a northern tradition. Have a have yeah. a wolf bite off your finger and uh, well, it's, make I hope it's not based on the UK because I haven't seen any northerners to do that. Like. <laughs> Yeah. I hope not anyway. Yeah, well, you never know. I've never been up north, so. Well, 
Well, maybe maybe you'll go up north and you'll be very yeah. surprised by what you find. Yeah, I'll bring a wolf with me. <laughs> just in case. Just in case. Better, better safe than sorry. All right. So that is going to wrap things up for this week. I uh, want to thank everybody so much for listening. Uh, but before we before we wrap up, we want to give our final thoughts on these episodes. So, Karen, I'll throw it over to you. Final thoughts on episodes six through ten of season one. Great episodes, great episodes. It really does exhibit the fact that we are now progressing and advancing into this complex and complicated world of Westeros. And there are so many different storylines that are emerging, and we've got so many more yet to come. But it seems as though it really does kick off from the end of episode six, Viserys' death, mm-hmm. and then we get into Ned's execution. Um, we've obviously got Jamie Lannister captured, Tyrion's named hand to the king, and it's all all setting up nicely for a big battle between <laughs> the Lannisters and the Starks and the Baratheons, I might add. So it's uh, it's definitely heating up, and I can't wait to get into season two. Dominic, over to you. Final thoughts. Oh yeah, I just have to say again how brilliantly done these episodes were. Uh, the whole build up to Ned's death, uh, never—I don't think most people would have saw that coming. It, it really was so well done. It was—it was—it was shot and written in such a way that you kept expecting someone to swoop in and save the day, and nobody ever did. And I think that's what separates this series from other series—is is the way it's willing to do that. And and really, it was—it was a fascinating uh, decision that they—that I guess George R. R. Martin made way back when, when he wrote the first book and. They pulled it off perfectly for television. And then just the other storylines that are going on, it was great to see sort of a turning point in John's life. And then, of course, uh, to see Daenerys having to deal with the fact that, you know, she was about to go from being, you know, second most powerful person or possibly even the most powerful person in that Dothraki tribe tribe to being nobody again. And to see the lengths she was willing to go to and the risks she was willing to take and how that informed her character going forward. And that's use of this statement, hero to zero, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hero to zero and then zero to hero again. All right. So, yeah, we want to thank everybody for listening to to this episode. And, of course, for everybody that listened to our first episode as well. Thank you for the feedback. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can subscribe to this show by uh, on iTunes by by searching for The Watchers of Westeros. Please do that. And uh, please leave us a, a nice review. We, we do really appreciate those. Uh, be sure to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Watchers of Westeros. And follow us on Twitter at Watcher Westeros. And then you can follow me personally on Twitter at DominicJ25. And you can follow Kieran on Twitter at CDuggan6. Kieran, why don't you let the people know what is coming up on Expression FM this week? Busy, busy times for Expression FM once again. We've got Expression Sport at the usual times of Saturday and Tuesday. Saturday at 11 a.m. till 2 p.m. and Tuesday from 8 p.m. until 10 p.m. That's GMT time. So you are welcome to listen in to all things related to sport, whether it's NFL or football or soccer, as the North Americans term it, <laughs> and uh, rugby, cricket. So so much coming up on expression. And this week, big week, Guild Elections Week. It's the representatives representatives of our student body, and they have their elections the same way that uh, our governments have elections. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens but it's going to be busy busy this week on expression fm so do please tune in 
Dominic, I'm sure you've got your own podcast that you may well want to disclose to the listeners. Yes, uh, if you're into Star Wars, we highly recommend, or at least I do, that you check out the Star Wars Underworld podcast. It's hosted by myself and my co-hosts, uh, Chris and Ben. Uh, it's recorded weekly, uh, Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on channel1138.com and then released on iTunes and our website, StarWarsUnderworld.com, uh, the next day. We talk about uh, the, the latest Rebels episodes as well as all of the news and rumors about Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens, all the other films that are coming out, uh, as well as all the other projects like video games and novels and comics and it's it's just good fun so i highly recommend checking that out and of course if you're into star wars you should also check out our other podcast the clone wars strikes back that's where we are going back and re-watching the emmy award-winning animated series star wars the clone wars and we discuss each and every episode and episode arc over there uh we've got a great episode that's coming out this week for that show so we highly recommend that everyone check that out so again, thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week talking about season two, episodes one to five. Uh, so for the Watchers of Westeros, I'm Dominic. And I'm Kieran. And remember, fire cannot kill a dragon. <laughs>